The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. For every storm and trial in life, and we need your grace for that, so we ask you give it. We thank you that we have a hope. We could write that with a capital H, hope. We have a hope. One who never fails, one who holds us even when we are faithless, remains faithful to us. That's you. Bless your name for that. Bless your name for that. Because we have that capital H, we have a lowercase h, hope. You keep burning in us. And I pray, Lord, if there are children of yours here today whose Hope fades, the flame flickers and blows and perhaps turns to ember. Would you fan it back, Lord, and enliven it and let it burn? Give to your people here, particularly those who need it right now this week, give them a great hope in the hope. You are good and kind and you never leave us nor forsake us. Thank you. Help us to see that in the passage here before us today, Lord. Help us to see it written between the lines because it's subtle. But help us to see it. Would you cause those of us, Lord, who are wandering, those here who don't know you, those here who do know you but are wandering, call out in voice that we can hear, Summon us back. Let your word fall tenderly but clearly on the ears of your people and in the ears of those that you mean to claim as your people. Speak in a way that we can hear. Give grace that we would respond. Open up your word to us, Lord. It's Thousands of years old, but you say that it is living and active and will pierce into the heart of human beings to teach and correct and rebuke and instruct and encourage and enliven. Make that happen here with this passage, I pray. Father, would you honor the Son? Would you build up your church? you send your spirit now for that purpose in this place at this time chase away all sin from us cause us to rest beneath you and to rejoice in you in your name for your name we pray amen turn our attention this morning to first samuel chapter 27 where we see david still fleeing from saul as we know, David is the one on whom God's favor rests, the one on whom his hand rests. He's the one who's going to be king, but for some time now yet, Saul's still king, and he's going to do everything he can to kill David. So he's still chasing him all over the wilderness, like we saw last week in chapter 26. Saul had heard again where David was hiding, and so he marched out with a force to find him. But this time, instead of running and hiding himself, David seeks out Saul scouts him out because he's learned a sweet lesson in the previous chapter with how God dealt with him and 
the story of Abigail and Nabal. David learned a sweet lesson about God's strong hand and his good intention to save and protect him. So he wants to, on a particular night, display that lesson. One night Saul is encamped, as we saw, in the middle of his little military force there, safe and secure, and David and one of his men walked down right into the middle of the camp and picked up the spear that was stuck on the ground next to Saul. And though David's partner wanted to thrust it back into him, David said no. Recounted how, in verse 10, he recounted how the Lord will take care of Saul. I'm confident of that. He'll strike him like he struck Nabal supernaturally or providentially it'll come his time to die because of old age or providentially it'll come his time to be swept away in battle perish in battle but one way or another the lord will take care of him i will defend him and he loves his enemy very confident that the lord will will deliver him and protect him so david shows great faith here he's riding high as he leaves this chapter i mean we we saw verse 12 the amazing sovereign hand of God stretches out and puts this whole army to sleep so that David can walk right up and stand right next to this man. God marvelously in charge, marvelously strong and good to David. David is is just at the peak of seeing God's hand and trusting Him. And then he comes down off that mountaintop and descends again into despair. Remarkably quickly in the text. He he goes right, boom, into faithless despair again. That's interesting. We can probably identify a little bit with that. And we're going to look at that to learn something in chapter 27. So I'm going to read 27 and the first two verses of chapter 28 also. Kind of connects a little bit. Short chapter, we'll read all the chapter and then pass back through it to make sure we understand the details. It's 27 verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow, And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns, that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now, David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, 
but would take away the sheep, the ox, and the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, Where have you made a raid today? David would say, Against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeramelites, Jeramelites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, So David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well. You shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. The word of the Lord. An interesting chapter. Connected pretty closely to the previous chapter. Verse 1 is presented to us as if it flows right out of the end of 26. 26 does end. It's the end of a story. But 27 just begins with, And David said making a connection for us, causing the narrative to flow for us right out of 26 into 27, which is important because it helps us to understand this chapter. We need some help interpreting this chapter because the Lord is never mentioned in chapter 27. God's not mentioned. Most of the time, the vast majority of the time, a unit within the Old Testament, within the Bible in fact, tells us something about what God is saying or what God is doing or what God thinks of something or what God wants, what He commands, what He hates. It tells us something about the Lord somewhere or another, but God's not mentioned at all in this chapter. Which makes it a little difficult, but we are helped in part by verse 1's connection to what just happened. It connects back in the flow of the narrative, as I said, and David said. It also connects back with that word perish, which is at the very end of the verse. In the previous chapter, verse 10, David speaks with this confident statement, this very important statement back there in verse 10. God will take care of Saul. God will strike him down, or it will come his time to die of old age, or he'll go down to battle and he'll perish. One way or another, God's going to take care of Saul using the same word as he uses here, but he has quite a different perspective now. Now, I, in fact, will one day perish at the hand of Saul. Is God going to take care of Saul? I used to think so. Suddenly I don't. I think Saul's going to take care of me. Next sentence then, still in verse 1. There's nothing better for me. Here's how I will escape. The only way that I can escape. Never minding that for 10 years now we've seen God helping David escape, 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 mentioned again and again. The only way I can escape is to go do what I just said evil men were forcing me to do. He had just complained to Saul about how Saul's uh, advisors were forcing him to leave the land and and go away from the heritage of the Lord as if it was to go out and serve other gods. And now he says, actually, that's my only hope. I'm going to go do that voluntarily. I'm going to go and serve, if not another god, I'm going to become a servant of the king of another land. Because, literally, he says, there is no good for me. 
it's, it's phrased, I mean, realistically it's phrased, there's nothing better for me to do. That, that's an okay translation, but literally, there is no good for me. Really, David, there's no good for you? Did you just live, chapter 26, no good for you? Really, no good. There's no other hope other than for you to do this. Oh, that's how he's thinking in verse 1. And so he goes over to the Philistines, back to Gath, he and the 600 men with him and all their families. And you can kind of see, if you, if you think into this a little bit, you can see some of the pressure he's under. There probably are a couple thousand people, if you think of 600 men and their families. A couple thousand? He's trying to hide in the desert and feed in the desert for years and years and years. There's a lot of pressure here. So it's understandable. But it takes this whole big assembly of people and goes back to Gath and meets Achish, who may or may not be the same guy that he interacted with back in chapter 21. You recall he's been to Gath before. But here in our chapter, verse 2, this, this man is introduced as Achish, son of Maok, which might indicate that he's a different guy. It's clarified whose son he is. And there's also some indication that the term Achish might be a word for ruler, kind of like Pharaoh or Caesar. It doesn't tell you who the guy is. It just tells you what he is. It's his title, so to speak. So this might be a different man, which is perhaps one of the reasons he's welcomed this time. On the other hand, also there have been years of, of David versus Saul that's happened now. And so Saul's probably seen as David's enemy and therefore David's my friend. Some of that perspective too. But for whatever reason, David is welcomed. He and his men... And as soon as they get settled in, they begin conducting these raids that are listed here, very carefully described by geography. Very cleverly disguised as geographic regions that we've attacked. And I'll leave it to you to assume who in those regions we've attacked. We've raided the Negev, which is this vast area of wilderness all to the south of Israel, claimed by Israel and by these friendly tribes. That's where we have gone. And Achish clearly assumes that's who they have attacked in those areas. It isn't. But David leaves him to assume that and then carefully slaughters everybody who would be a witness otherwise. Rather brutal. But he protects his secret for over a year and keeps raiding, keeps raiding these enemies, these different tribes here who were enemies of Israel. And he all launches all these raids from his base in Ziklag. That's the town they were given to live in when they asked. It's to the south towards Egypt. And as verse 6 records that gift, we get a, a second helpful clue in understanding the, the thrust of this chapter. The seemingly God-free text. It says, Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. There's a clue there. All the events of First and Second Samuel, obviously they took place over several generations. So this, this book that we call First and Second Samuel, or just Samuel in, in Jewish writing, was obviously not compiled under the inspiration of God until after everything had happened. But it was written down and recorded over time, and then at one point it was all under the inspiration of God, gathered together and put in what we call First and Second Samuel. When was that? Well, verse 6 gives us a clue. When would anybody have referred to the kings of Judah? You know your Old Testament history? It wouldn't be until after the kingdom of Israel had split into the kingdoms of Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. 
After after Saul is David, after David is Solomon, after Solomon, the next king in the line of David is a fool and the kingdom splits. And at that point, we have the kingdom of Judah and sometime then or thereafter, Samuel is compiled, which is important. A little point, which is important, because one of the largest issues from the time of the split on is which one is God's? Which kingdom is God's kingdom? Which royal line is God's royal line? And therefore, to whom should we give our allegiance? The line of David, Judah, or other? And again and again and again, including in this passage, God is pointing us one way at David. What, what did David do when he left the land? He continued to fight, not against Israelites, but against the enemies of Israel. Most, if not all, there's a question about one of the spellings, so it's hard to identify all these folks here. Potentially all of them, and certainly most of them, were enemies of Israel, people who were not wiped out by Joshua, but were supposed to have been. When Joshua came in to conquer the land, the land of Israel, he and the Israelites failed to eliminate everybody, and here's David fighting against them, expanding the conquest, adding to the territory of Israel even, taking another city and owning it. The kings of Judah possessed the city. It's a subtle hint, but it's another one in the long line. of It started back in Judges, you'll recall, answering which king should we follow, the one from Gebeah of Benjamin or the one from Bethlehem of Judah? It's been going on very subtly. Here's another point. God still likes David. God's still with David. God has not abandoned David. Even amidst Davidic failing and faithlessness, God still intends to bring the kingdom through David. So keep looking to God through David. That's the passage. It's short. As I said, it doesn't mention the Lord at all, but there still are some things for us to learn here. I'm going to make two observations. first one's longer than the second one. First, looking at David's failing. Here's the first observation, which I'll express as an exhortation, an encouragement. Fight the falsehood that leads to faithlessness. Fight the falsehood that leads to faithlessness. Leads to unbelief. That faithlessness, that that unbelief is the biggest problem in the text here. There are other problems that we're supposed to see, I think. I think we're supposed to notice, boy... David's playing kind of fast and loose with some ethics and some morality here. We're supposed to look at this and and not quite have a very positive feel for this. We, We look and we see not quite all good, but we can't quite say it's all bad. There's a lot that's not very clear here. For instance, we look at David leaving Israel to to go and live among the Philistines. Oh, David. But on the other hand, he did leave and go to Moab earlier, and that was okay. Parked his family in Moab, remember that? 
And we look and say, David fighting, and, and it twice says, slaughtering all the men and the women so there'd be no witnesses. Ooh, that's brutal. And, and we know from history that that's more bloody than most raiding ended up being. But on the other hand, these are the enemies of Israel that were supposed to have been wiped out centuries before in the judgment of God. So perhaps God's using this for good. And we look and say, oh, there's some deception there of Achish. There's some some deliberate deception there. But on the other hand, it was technically accurate. Where he went, and he left it to him to assume who he went after. I think we're supposed to look at that and and have an overall unfavorable impression of David here, at the very least to see that he is completely human and is, is working it. But what is clear, and that on which we are to focus, because it's the headwaters from which all the rest of this come, is the very unfortunate verse 1. God does give us a verdict on verse 1 because of how He ties it back into the previous things that have happened and what He puts on David's lips. This is what's supposed to draw our attention. Everything that happens after it, is it good? Is it bad? Is it a mix of the two? Hard to tell for certain, but it starts in a bad place, in a place of unbelief. Faithlessness. David said to his heart, David instructs himself. We often use the language here of talking to yourself or preaching to yourself. David does that here. He speaks to his heart, it says. But not like the psalmist does in verse in Psalms 42 and 43. He does not say to his heart, looking at a hard situation, at a fearful situation, he does not say, why so downcast, O my soul? Why despairing in me put your hope in God? He doesn't. He does not say, like the psalmist says to his own heart, I will yet again praise Him, my my God, my salvation. He doesn't say that. He instead says, what's the use? I'm doomed. That's what he says to his heart. I will surely perish one day by the hand of Saul. Yeah, I know that Last night I said, or the day before I said, that Saul will surely perish, but I'm looking at it again now. And it, no way. It's, it, it can't happen. Essentially, instead of saying hope in God, what he says is self-believe this. Saul is more tenacious than God. Saul is more powerful than God. Saul's hand will triumph over the hand of God. The only good there could possibly be for me here is the end of pressure right now, and that's not happening. Therefore, there is no good, and the only way I can escape is to take matters into my own hands and get out of here. It's no use. I'm going to perish. That is just so disappointing if if you're... Really liking David. But on the other hand, it sounds so much like me. Like you. 
up here seeing a mighty work of God, seeing the deliverance of God, the gift of God, the goodness of God, and then, no, can't be. I'm doomed. That is exactly the the dilemma that we face. These kinds of ideas, these, these kinds of theories about how there is no hope, how the things I'm seeing with my eyes are more strong and control the, the course of life more than God does, that, that's not foreign to us. Those ideas are out there. They are presented to us by the world. They are whispered to us by our own souls and by our enemy. You, you realize there is constantly a... a a conversation going on out here. What you see with your eyes is determinative. What you see with your eyes, what you feel with your your hands, rules. And look, there's no hope. Run. Take matters into your own hands yourself. That is all floating around out there, whispered to us all the time, and the temptation is to look at it. You you can't control hearing that. That will come. It'll it'll come out of you. It'll come off the radio. It'll come from friends and neighbors around you. You can't control hearing that. But the temptation, the problem is to look at it, grab it, and speak it to your heart. To say, self, believe this. Don't go there have to fight that. You have to fight that falsehood that leads to faithlessness and take it one step further beyond faithlessness to despair and sorrow. To to some here, this To some here, there is a healthy degree of a theory that I'm saying. And I say healthy degree because you're not, thankfully, bless God, you're not in the midst of despair. But there are some others here who at the moment, who this week already passed or the one coming, you yourselves will be despairing ones. And I plead with you, listen and, and look at something here. When you are despairing, when you are sorrowing, when you are downcast, that comes from somewhere. And you, dear one, I'm not accusing you, pointing something out helpful. You, dear one, have a part to play in that. You are responsible for what you grab hold of and speak to your heart and believe and then act on which leads to despair. I say that, I hope, carefully. Because the great danger is that to the despairing one, I just said, and it's your own fault. Oh, thank you very little. So I want to say very carefully, you have a part to play. You are responsible. For those of us, I hope the majority, who are not at the moment in the midst of despair... Take this, write it down, understand how you work, how your heart works. But for those who are in the the moment, the, the time of trial right now, 
I need to communicate this to you. I hope graciously and carefully you have a role to play. You are not a passive receiver of things from out there. They just come and they strike you and they affect you. You have a role. You have a role. Which may sound hard, but should sound hopeful. Because where you have a role, you also have a weapon. Something you can do about it. David here stabs himself. He sees an idea bouncing around out there. There's no hope. There's no hope. Saul's going to win. And he says, yes, he is. And he runs. Don't run that into your own heart. Hold it up and fight with it. Stop and say, no, I, I hear that, but oh, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God, who is stronger than Saul. I've seen it again and again and again and again and again. He fed me from his table. He poured the anointing oil on me. He has delivered me. He has given me insight into the hidden thoughts of men. He has spoken to me through Jonathan, my friend, you shall reign. Through Abigail, a stranger, you shall reign. Through Saul himself, you shall reign. Oh, why so downcast, oh my soul? Why so trapped in unbelief? Fight! You have a role to play. You have truth with which to fight. You must preach to yourself and you are responsible for which message you turn and plant and water and fertilize. That may be hard, but oh, that should be hopeful because it means you are not passive at the whim of the wind. And you have an arsenal at your disposal. So, so you have to, to run this back from, oftentimes it runs back from the feeling. Why am I downcast, oh my soul? You often notice it at the back end. You often notice it at the end. Why am I downcast? Oh, because of what I'm believing. Oh, that ain't true. Oh, I better pull that out by the roots and plant something else and water it, speak it to my soul, and find joy in the midst of sorrow. It does not make tragedy go away. In fact, God will bring tragedy. He will bring tribulation. That's how life works. For God's good purposes. But the only way to rejoice while sorrowing, the only way to rejoice while sorrowing, is to have your eyes set on the truth. On the truth that God is God. That God's hand lies over everything that happens to you for your good and not a thing in the world can separate you from the love of Christ your Savior. That is the truth. It is the truth. It is the truth. It is good news. 
But it will not, it will not be offered to you by all the voices in the world. And it will not be offered to you naturally by your fallen heart. You have to fight to take captive the thoughts that come. You can't keep the thoughts from coming, but to take them captive and submit them beneath the truth. I I know that in some degree what that's saying is to the hurting one, to the downcast one, you're doing something wrong. It potentially comes across like that. And and if there's some of that in there, then, then okay. Okay. What do you do with your wrong that you're doing? Kill yourself over it? No, you repent. Thank God for forgiveness and move on. It's the gospel. Thank God. Thank God. And then you see, oh, there's great hope there though, because what that means is I can go to Psalm 42 and 43. I don't need to be 27-1. I can look at Saul in all of his might. I gave him back the spear. What in the world was I thinking? I gave him back the spear. It's going to come at me again. I'm sure of it. But why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. I will again praise Him. He is my God and my salvation. That is the truth. That is the truth. Preach that truth to yourself. Look for falsehood. Look for the lies that have worked their way in there and have become the pattern, have become the path down which you walk. Look for the lies. Maybe you need another friend to help you root it out. Just a caution about that. Oftentimes we don't want that to happen because what that's going to mean is the friend's going to tell us we're doing something wrong. We don't like that, especially in the midst of hurt. It's good. It's good. And surgeons can do us good when they cut. And I encourage you, I encourage you. If if you don't if you don't think about the gospel, then all there is coming here, even from what I'm saying right now, all there is is just another load of condemnation on you. You're doing something wrong, you're not believing the truth, you mess up. But if you believe the gospel. If you believe the gospel, there's there's hope. There's good news here, in fact. It's a way out. So are you sorrowing? Do you see faithless, faithlessness in you? Do you see wavering or despairing or wandering towards sin? Then go on the hunt in your own heart and look for the lie, the falsehood that's been planted in there, embraced, and is growing. What are you chasing when you click on that site on the internet? What are you chasing? You believe you need some sort of physical gratification to be okay, to feel good. That's a lie. And you believe you need it right now that you can't wait until. It's a lie. So I speak there of something active. I should also talk of, of the passive because this, the same problem also looks like this. Oh, what's the use? 
There's no hope. Nothing will improve. So I'm not going to do anything. It's a lying down. That also is the same faithlessness that comes from the same feeling of hopelessness and despair that in the same way discounts the goodness of God and His activity and His ability to change you. It's the same thing wearing different clothing. Hunt down the falsehood that has been planted inside of you and that believed is leading you down a path that at the end produces despair and sorrow and disappointment and dishonor to God. You have a part to play. I very carefully said you have a part to play. You have a part to play. It is not completely in your hands. Because we aren't God. God marvelously, thankfully, is about the business of changing people. You. We don't change ourselves. I've used this analogy before, but in a sense, when we, when we fight, what we do is we take the tools, like, I've never been in a, in a surgery, but, well, I've been on the receiving end of the surgery, I guess, but <laughs> I've never been on the giving end. Uh, I take it from all the TV shows I've seen that there's somebody there handing tools to an operator. The operator says, you know, instrument, and somebody hands it to him, and then he goes or she goes to work with that, whatever it is. My basic understanding. We have a part to play. We are not the operator. We put tools in the hand of the operator. Of a God who in fact does work change. Who does cut out unbelief. Using tools. Using tools. We, we, we put the tools on the table by putting our noses in the book and by praying, 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 oh God, make this real. Oh God, bring this to life. And the Spirit then takes that and acts in His time, in His way, at His choosing. But He acts. And the good, 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 good news is that He acts even when he's looking at people who so desperately need the acting on, because the, the irony in this little situation is that we're also the patient. I presented it as if we're the one handing the, the scalpel or whatever to the surgeon. We're the patient also. He looks at, he looks at us and he should say, No. No. But instead he says, yes. I see you in your faithlessness and I am faithful to you nonetheless. I will act. This brings us to the second point. Our help is from the Lord who remains faithful in our faithlessness. 
The Lord remains faithful to His own, to His people, even when we are faithless. That's the reason that you can trust Him. Now, this is subtle here. We've got to, as I said, kind of read between the lines because the Lord is not mentioned in the chapter. But as we read this, we might find ourselves in the situation of people at the time of the split kingdom saying, well, who should we follow? We read this and say, well, clearly, if you read verse 1, clearly God's done with David. There's going to be a next. Faithlessly, he, he finally cashed in his chips and left. There's going to be a next. Like there was after Saul, a next. After David, after David says, no use, I'm out of here, there will be a next. But there isn't. There's a God who actually uses this turn of events and protects David. David stays in Ziklag all the way to Saul's death. That's home now for him. It's God's protection on him. And there's a chapter 28 and 29 and 30 and 31 in 2 Samuel. David's not over. God stays with him. And there is continually... On down, even through the generations, there's a continuing God putting His finger on the line of David. Because David is worthy? Because David's an honorable guy, always faithful? In in fact, no. We see David's faithlessness here and God's faithfulness to him, which tells us something about God. There's a gracious God who speaks clearly, even if very subtly, David cannot escape my grace. He can't get away. He's faithless here. He's afraid here. He runs here, but he can't escape my grace. I go with him. I continue to work through him, even using him, and I will bring him back. The Lord is David's hope, not David's ethics, not David's morality, not David's upstanding heart, not David's determination, not David's trust. The Lord is the hope of his people. He remains faithful to us even when we are faithless. That is good news for us because we are often faithless. Let's just be honest about that. Okay, let's just stop and be honest. We who are Christians, and some here I imagine are not Christians, but most of us here are Christians. And if we stop and if we're honest about it, the number of times in any given day that the thoughts of the world rise up and we grab them and say, that's true, and believe it and walk after it. In the pursuit of all the things the world offers, in in unbelief, that's common for us. That's common. And if God looked at us and every time He saw 27 verse 1 happen in us, said, I'm out. 
You're on your own. I'm moving on. We, w- we would have been doomed a long time ago. But look at this and behold the grace of God, even where you don't actually see the word God or the word Lord here. Behold the grace of God in this text. He holds on to him. He sticks with him. Continues to use him here and onward. There is a faithful friend here to David. Because David himself needs a Savior. God keeps his finger on the line of David. He keeps, his, he keeps upholding David, not because David's good, but because, David prom- because God promised David, I'm going to make you a house, and through you I'm going to bring another David who will always be faithful. Who will be the Savior that you yourself need, and all my people. There's a whole lot in us that is like David, faithless despite all the reasons to believe. And the good news is that God has finally raised up a Savior in the line of David for you. And He will not leave you. He will not kick you away from that Savior when you are faithless to Him. That's good news. You are responsible for what you put in your mind and what you believe, what you walk after. You have a part to play in that. But God has the decisive part to play and He has told you and shown you He will play it. He will not leave you. He will come, draw near to you, grab you, pick you up, and carry you all the way home. You have a part to play. You must continue to hold on to Him if you would know joy in this world and if you would know the One who means to be your sustainer all through the trials. But if you belong to Him, you can rest in the assurance that He will not let go of you even in your moments of greatest despair, your deepest unbelief. That is good news. It's the kind of good news that's meant to drive us out of unbelief. You are in struggle, but you have a helper. The helper that will listen to you, so cry out to him. So to you who are, let me close with this, to you who are in the moment now of despair, and I know there are some here, I know. To you who are in that moment, you do have a part to play. You must take the truth of God and fight to believe it. And right next to it, you must say, thank God it's not up to me. Thank God that I have a friend who is closer to me than a brother. It's closer to me than any of my parents, than any of my other friends, than than my spouse or my parents, than, than my children. Closer to me than anyone else. I have one who sees me as precious, will hold my life and will be at work even when I fail. He will be at work.
play your part. Give him the weapons. Trust him. Pray and ask him. Do that which I cannot do. I read, it looks, it looks dry to me. Give me life from it, please. I walk around, I feel like, like I'm a stranger, like I'm ostracized. Be a dear friend to me. This is the lover of your soul. He will answer. He will illumine your mind. He will strengthen your hands. He will uphold you and deliver you. He will not abandon his people, which is you. Hope in him. Hope in him. Let me pray. God, I pray that you would take your word here and you would appropriately stir us, your people, to action. to a a fighting vigor. But I pray also that You would stir us to a hope. You would call us back to faith. For certain people here this week, Lord, you, You know who they are. You know what they need more than I do. But for certain people here this week, would You show Your faithfulness to them? in tangible ways they can see. Speak to your people about your cross. Sure evidence of your faithfulness to people who do not believe. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Speak to us about that. But I pray in addition to that, Lord... Would you show tangible help and give us eyes to see it? You showed tangible things to David along his decade of of trouble. You gave him messages. You showed him your hand. Would you do that for particular people in particular ways this week to encourage them and give them eyes to see it? That is your work. We look to You for it and hope in You to do it. Help us please, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.